Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Coast to Coasties podcast. Today, I am recording an episode with my bosun from Coast Guard Cutter Oak. We just got back from a very long patrol, and it's been a little while since I got an episode published, but this one is going to be well worth the wait because we have a very long, extensive career to cover, and we're also going to cover the world of Aton. Might make this a two-part episode. We'll see how it ends up going, <laughs> but we'll start out by hearing his whole career, and we'll move on from there. So without further ado, here's Bozen Fonville. Well, thank you for uh, allowing me to sit for this podcast. This is, I've heard a lot about it. And uh, my name is Matt Fonville. I joined the Coast Guard in 1999. So just over 23 years ago, I, um, I went to boot camp in Cape May and uh, decided I was going to make the Coast Guard part of my life. So what made you decide to start your journey in the Coast Guard at a young age? Well, I grew up on the water in South Florida and I, you know, I saw the Coast Guard out there doing the things they were doing and all the boats running around. I actually asked my dad about it and he kind of told me a little about it because his interaction on the water with the Coast Guard and I really didn't know what I was going to do in college. So I was like, well, I can join the Coast Guard. I can have my housing paid for. I can have my medical paid for and I can go to school and start a career and kind of go from there. And I'm, you know, tried to make the best of what I've done so far. Well, I'm curious just when you joined too, I've talked to a lot of people on this show and everyone's always heard about the Coast Guard from a friend, family, relative member, someone who's been in the service. Did you consider another branch of the service at all or was the Coast Guard going to be your... I didn't. No, the Coast Guard was pretty much my avenue I was going to... I was uh, dedicated to, to join when I graduated high school. And was boot camp a lot different back in 1999 well, than when... it is now? <laughs> <laughs> it was so long ago, yeah. Um, I've heard it's different. Um, we had, you know, obviously the, the physical aspect of it and the mental aspect of it. I know some of the training has changed for the range stuff, the seamanship classes. But from what I've heard, they've it's, it's changed a little bit, but it was pretty consistent with what it was 20 years ago. Still an eight-week program? Still an eight-week program. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there was talk about it. I remember when I went through, they were talking about extending it. Because uh, I had a friend that went through right after me, but um, they kept it at eight weeks. So. And when you graduated boot camp, where did you end up getting stationed out of? So my first unit was Polar Sea, the, one of the heavy icebreakers in Seattle. Uh, that was my number one pick. I was like, you know, I'm going to go afloat. And uh, it was funny because when I left home, my dad was like, go as far away from home as you can. Because you can always come home. You can always go back. And it was pretty cool. You know, I went to Seattle. I got on the icebreaker. We were in the shipyard at the time. Uh, so I was sanding and painting, doing deck force stuff. And um, I ended up, it was fortunate. I, I made two trips to McMurdo on there, two trips down south to Antarctica. And it was awesome. It was an inc- incredible trip. Just stopping in Australia, stopping in American Samoa, you know, Tasmania, going down to the ice, running around the small boats down there. Being out on the ice with the penguins and stuff would come around you. And uh, some of the penguin rookeries we went to as well. We went to one where it was an old base. that They had some netting we had to repair around some of the, uh, the drums and oil you know, areas and stuff. But uh, So we got to interact with uh, really close to a lot of penguins. A lot of the baby penguins too when they still have their fur and stuff on them. But, oh, really? Uh, yeah. So that, <laughs> that was really cool. That was a, that was a good experience. Um, there's a, a video going around them. Facebook from some one of the guys of the trip 
still to this day, and, and uh, it's pretty neat to watch some of the stuff we did. Well, I think a lot of people, because of how small the polar security cutter fleet is currently, you have the Healy that goes up to the Arctic, mm-hmm. and you had yep. the Star and the Sea yep. that made their alternating trips to mm-hmm. Antarctica. But now the fact that there's only one that still makes the trip to Antarctica... I think a lot of people wouldn't even know too much about these polar security cutters. And it's really cool that you were able to experience one. Yeah, it was a experience and it's pretty cool to tell everybody about now, mm-hmm. but especially, you know, now that we're down to one and it's a very important mission to go down there and, you know, resupply, you know, break open the ice. So McMurdo station can have a resupply for the winter and stuff and with the fuel and the uh, equipment that they need to winter over. But, uh, you know, and doing a lot of helo ops and stuff on it. And um, you got to do a lot of a lot of training. And from there, while I was there, I got the opportunity to see, you know, a lot of different ranks or rates on the boat, too. We had the course bosun mates. We had the MKs. We had DCs. We had, uh, well, now they're ITs and stuff. But we had, like, the telephone technician guys. So we had ETs and TCs as well that worked radio. And we also had quartermasters at the time. So... You know, since I was making the trip, I was like, well, hey, I like navigation and this seems like pretty cool stuff. So I actually struck quartermaster on there. So I learned on the job and got all the qualifications done, took my test and I actually made QM3 on that boat. So if you look back in the history books and you'll read that Coast Guard had quartermasters that did primary navigation on the bridge and stuff. And we would do navigation with some of the sextants and stuff everything with stars at night and the sun during the day. And so it was a pretty neat opportunity and pretty neat stuff to learn. Well, I think that's the benefit uh, going on a big boat early in your career is you get to see a lot of the rates in operation too. So you can make the best decision for yourself because if you go to a smaller unit, you're not going to have that opportunity to see all the rates necessarily. And that really was able to give you a good opportunity to see what you want to do. Exactly. And cemented I mean, out. Exactly. We had a couple of people um, that I actually worked with who became quartermasters from A school. And one of them, he was like, hey, I really wish I knew what quartermasters did before I went to A school. And, you know, it's it's good that that you get to go to the boats like that that have all the ranks because you can work with them. You can have that opportunity and to really learn about what the job is about and what the specialties are uh, before you decide either to make it, you know, a four-year career, six-year, or 20-year-plus or career. And uh, it, that just makes everything better. It makes your life better. makes, you know, you enjoy your job a lot more and uh, more beneficial to the Coast Guard. Well, quartermaster, too, I, that's primarily what I studied in college was quartermaster side stuff. And I remember we had this giant sign-off packet, and we had to prove that we knew all the navigation type stuff. So I'm assuming that's similar to how the striker program worked, where mm-hmm. you had to demonstrate competency in a whole wide variety of things that relate to the quartermaster rate. Yes, yes. You had to, you know, you had to create track lines. You had to convert true courses to magnetic courses. You had to do, for us also, we had to do flag hoist and semaphore with all the, you know, number and letter flags and everything. We had to do flashing light as well. So... Um, there was a lot to it, a lot of individualized specialty stuff that we had to, to learn. But then because you went through the striker program, you never actually had to attend an A school because that's what everyone does now is they go to A school, but you didn't have to do that because you struck the rate. I did, yeah, on the job training. Mm-hmm. And 
So when did that go away? Because I don't think that is around <laughs> anymore for any rate. The um, striker programs, it kind of phased out with some of the rates and everything to totally doing away with. Now they have the A school. They have the short programs for some of the A schools. If okay. you have certain qualifications. Okay, because I did hear that the striker took a long time to do in some rates comparatively it, to eight weeks of school. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And, it, you know, if you were consistently doing it or, um, you know, if you had to manage it with your other duties and stuff, it yeah, it could take a while. Okay. Well, that's not the name. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone listen, you will be going to A school. Yes. Uh, or a hybrid uh, rap program if you're aviation or Bozeman has a rap program. More, more rates are trying to go rap programs, I think, now. Mm-hmm. Kind of hybrid A school training environment thing. Anyways, we digress. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Back to your career, Bose. Okay. So you became a QM3. Where yes. did you go after you struck the rate as a QM3? So I was able to finish out my one of the trips. I made quartermaster on or QM3 on the way down to, to McMurdo one year. And when I got down there, the, my master chief at the time, he uh, emailed the detailer. And he, he the detailer emailed him back and said, have him call me. And this was like the same day. And I called him. And from there, I was in, in, the, in the ice down there, down south, and he said, uh, where would you like to go? So, and I was like, well, I don't, somewhere on the east coast, I guess. You know, we'll see what's what's open. What do you have available? And he ended up, after a couple, you know, discussions and stuff, I went to a uh, 110-foot patrol boat in Key West. So, from Seattle to the ice to the tropical Key West. Working in the Arctic to the ice blue waters of Key West. That's it. So, <laughs> That's the complete opposite. Yep. And we we also made it up north on the Polar Roller too, which was pretty fun. Um, up to Nome and stuff. But that's discussion. Well, um, did you, when you were uh, in Antarctica, did you think there was pretty decent cell reception for being in Antarctica? We actually had a phone that once we got down there, uh, McMurdo Station would provide us with a, a phone for the boat. So that we would come out and they would they'd rig it all up on the so we could call home and even on the pier down there, we had a, a phone in a, like a phone booth kind of trailer on the ice pier. So you know we had just started carrying cell phones at the time. So I had a pocket full of calling cards and I'd call home with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you didn't have that problem, in Key West. No, not in Key West. No, not at all. So. So you end up going to Key West. Mm-hmm. Uh, what size boat were you on there? I was on a 110-foot patrol boat. I was on the Sapelo. Okay. So those are, again, phased out of the Coast Guard currently in favor of the new FRCs. Yes. Old platforms. Yep. Did you enjoy your time on the 110 in Key West? I did at the time. It was nice. It was a nice area and stuff to go down there, something new to explore. And, and it was a new mission for me, um, doing the law enforcement down there. Uh, so, you know, as a quartermaster's too, there was only two of us on the boat. So, you know, we had a lot more responsibility to manage and, you know, we were constantly busy. We were in port, we'd get recalled, you know, other than our maintenance periods and stuff, we'd be on standby down there. And, uh, you know, it was cool. We did <clears throat> some fishing and stuff down there while we were out and uh, got to go around to the Bahamas and down to uh, Haiti. Spent a month and a half anchored in uh, Port-au-Prince Harbor down there, the Windward Passage, Gitmo, that whole Caribbean area and Cuba and stuff like that. Well, pirate zones. Yeah. <laughs> the old school pirates. Yep. Blackbeard. I guess I would ask about that 
time of your career, being the early 2000s. This is before the before the Hurricane Katrina happened, mm-hmm. before the big earthquake in Haiti happened too. Yep. So, what was the state of the area down there as a whole? So, the time we were in Haiti was when it was about 2002 time frame, and it was when um, there was a lot of unrest in Port-au-Prince. And they were catching mountainsides on fire. A lot of people were still fleeing the country, and uh, so we would we would do the you know law enforcement and interdict them, you know interdict their the boats and stuff, and and repatriate them to to Port-au-Prince. It was pretty cool at the time though too because we got to go ashore and we actually had a bunch of um, an orphanage brought a bunch of children to the Coast Guard base down there. Mm. So we got to play soccer with them, and we got to play football with them, and you know, really interact with with some of the local um, people down there, and it was it was it was a lot of fun. Well, I think that's a great opportunity too, just for people to be able to culturally broaden themselves. Just, you never know where people come from in the Coast Guard, definitely. And then everyone comes together at this base in Haiti to be able to play soccer with the local kids. Mm-hmm. That's just an amazing thing to be able to say you did. Yeah, I would have never been stationed that. in the Coast Guard. Yeah. You don't think about that first thing when you join is all oh, being Haiti playing soccer <laughs> right, <laughs> on a yeah, base. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you ended up doing your tour in Key West. And this is probably around the time where Quartermaster was uh, nearing its end of life. So, yes. Uh, in 2002, when I reported to the Sapelo, we spent a little bit of time down there in the Caribbean and, and Key West area and stuff doing our, our job. And we actually took the boat to... Baltimore to the Coast Guard shipyard for its maintenance period. And while we were there, we were directed to, as a crew to stand up patrol forces Southwest Asia and with four other 110s from a couple different port calls or a couple different ports um, and uh, stations and units and stuff, everything. So we all went and uh, met up in Portsmouth, Virginia. And after all of our training, we went over and set up Pat Force SWA at the at the base there loaded the 110s up in norfolk shipped them over on a ship and during my time there as you mentioned the quartermaster rating is when it's in about 2003 is when uh, everything merged so one day i was a quartermaster i was a qm2 because i make i made qm2 shortly after getting to the 110 and then um, while i was over there i became a bm2 so i was a second class bosun mate while i was in bahrain so, so they did away with the, the rate while I was there. I guess I would ask about that then because you joined on the premises that you like the quartermaster stuff and want to do the quartermaster stuff. Mm-hmm. And then overnight they tell you, okay, now you're going to be a BM instead, a bosun mate. Yep. And it just shifted like that and you all of a sudden had all this other duties and responsibilities thrown in you that you didn't have before. Right, yes. How did that feel all of a sudden being told, okay, now you're a new rate, you're now a bosun mate? <laughs> so... I didn't personally, um, I had not, I don't think I had been a quartermaster long enough to really been uh, affected by it. Some of them were senior quartermasters and stuff that my master chief was on the polar sea. He, uh, he's like, you know, Hey, I feel like everything I've been doing for the last 20 years is, you know, not as important now that they're going to do away with my rate. Cause this is all I've known. So I think it really impacted a lot of the, the more senior, um, people than, than those of us who were, you know junior and who had just kind of made it there so 
Um, one of the other options too they could have done was uh, the quartermasters go with the OS operation. You know. So you had the option to either go OS or Bozeman. I did. And how many of your friends would you say chose that other OS option? I only had Bozeman? one friend out of a handful there that that went OS, mm-hmm. um, and he was one of the quartermasters on the one of the boats. Okay. So. And the OS rate then had recently had a couple merges of its own, I think, too, at the time. So that was a fairly newer rate back then. It was too. a new rate, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, so it was it was a you know they I think they merged what they're created with TCs I think it was so they were the telecommunication specialists that hang out in radio. Well, that was weird. I don't think no big other shifts have happened since then, right? With all the rates, uh, they've added some, but I don't think they've done such a big shift of rates and yeah, destroying. I don't, I don't think so. No. Okay, so. so just something that happens every so often then, based on the new missions and needs of the Coast Guard. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So you were in Path Force Wa, you mentioned Bahrain. Mm-hmm. Now that's a billet that a lot of people try to get out of boot camp. There's a special meaning behind it now is because with longer weight A schools, if they want to be an MST, a public affairs specialist, an HS, right. they can go to Path Force Wa, serve exactly one year there, and then get moved to the top of their A school list. Regardless of how long other people have been waiting, they get moved to the top and might even get priority out of A school at their next unit they want to go to. Yes. So when we initially went over there, we were we were over there temporarily. We didn't know how long we were going to stay or when we were going to come back. Um, and the crew that actually relieved us is when they started doing the one-year tours. Okay. And that's when they started doing all the priority stuff and uh, you know for A schools. Well, I've even heard now that people try to get it if they want to line themselves up perfectly, if they want to go to activities Far East Asia and Japan or Singapore, mm-hmm. or if they want to go over to the uh, Netherlands and activities Europe, they'll line it up so they'll do their year tour and then be able to put in for that billet because it's a very competitive process. So do a lot of people use Path Force Swap for that? I think so. Or do you see a lot of interest also just going to the Middle East and checking out Bahrain for a little while? I think it could be some of that too. Uh, but once the you know the A school list and stuff get pretty long and, and people are on the wait and they're up for transfer, they'll put Path Force Swap on there and, and it helps them move to the top of the list. So. Based on your photos, you get to wear a cool uh, tan boonie hat. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep. You got all that stuff. Did you enjoy your time over there in the mission? Was it another new mission that you were doing over there? Because I'm sure you weren't doing migrant interdiction over in Cap yep. Swamp. No migrant stuff. Um, being that I was shoreside, uh, we provided security to the to the cutters when they would come back to Bahrain and stuff so the crews could have some some downtime and relax. And then when the boats would go up north, you know, they would provide security up there uh, and then escorts and everything to Kuwait. So Okay. Uh, so you weren't there too long. No, I was there, we were there six months. And then did you go back so, to Key West afterwards? Yes. So we came back as a crew and we, um, actually was when the 123 project started where they would, ex- they, they had took a couple 110s and they were extending them 13 feet to make them 123 feet. So one of the crews in Key West, um, was going to take over a new 123 so we actually took over the Nantucket, which was their old boat. So we we were still assigned to a unit in Key West to finish out our, our regular tour down there. How did they extend it 13 feet? They took the boats to the Gulf Coast. To, I don't remember. I think it was in Biloxi. And uh, they chopped the transom off and put a stern launch extension on it so they can uh, 
you know, that's where they started doing the stern launch stuff for the boats. Yeah, the one I was on didn't have that, so I think I was on a old school 110. <laughs> yeah, so they did that, and they had a big taffrail on them, and uh, they put a new pilot house on it, kind of like the 87-style pilot house, and shifted some of the burthens around. And, um, yeah, so they, it was, it was a short project that, uh, they tried, but we, I never, I was never on one. Uh, of course, when they came back to Key West, we went and looked at the new boats that were all around and stuff, but well, we, we got our 110, we took over the Nantucket and then finished out my tour in Key West. So I was down there a total of three years. Okay. So that would bring us to, if I'm correct, 2004. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and then... In 2004. 2004, I received orders to the Maria Bray in Jacksonville, Florida. So it was kind of my foot in the door to Aton. Okay. So this is your first Aton experience. It is. Yep. And you ended up going there. Yep. I went there and uh, loved it. Loved every minute of it. Buoy tenders are awesome. It was a fun boat to work on, hard work on the buoy deck. You know, the crew was great. And this is one of the 175s. This is a 100, yep, 175-foot uh, buoy tender. Okay. You know, we worked from Georgetown, South Carolina, to Fort Pierce, Florida, and the Bahamas over in Andros Island. So, and because you, you were a BM2 there. I was. Yep. Did you have to get your coxswain qual while you were on the buoy tender? I actually got my coxswain qual on the 110. Okay, so you got that prior to going to the buoy tender. I did. I got that one there. And then uh, when I made it to the buoy tender, I was there about a year, and then I made first after that. Okay, and were you able to stay on the buoy tender? Because it sounds like you really enjoyed your time there. I was. I was able to finish out my tour on the buoy tender for three years there. And um, from there, you know, after we worked on everything, we did a lot of hurricane response. And it is pretty cool when you do that job. You know, you can see tangible results of what you do. You know, when you go up to a channel after a hurricane and it's destroyed, you know, you put in long, hard days and sunrise and sunset and you look back after you fixed all those buoys in the afternoon and they're all blinking in a straight line and know that you did that you know with the crew and uh, as a team it's a it's a big sense of accomplishment well i think that was the first question i asked you is why you liked aton so much Mm -hmm. you said that and that really made me think and appreciate the work we do out there that we can see the results of it and we, we're going to get a lot more into Aton for anyone listening that's interested in black holes, but I'm going to save that for, this is going to be a two-parter, so <laughs> we're going to save that for the second part of the Bozen Fonville episode is getting into the weeds of the buoy tendon, but just as an overview, what Bozen's talking about is when a hurricane comes through, moves all the sinker blocks that are on the bottom, so all the buoys are out of position for where they normally are, and you can't have that if mariners are trying to navigate safely in a channel. So buoy boats, buoy tenders, like the one Bozeman's on down in Jacksonville, go out there, they pick all of them up physically off the seafloor, and they move them back to where they're supposed to go. So essentially everything's all hodgepodge mixed up. You move them back to where they're supposed to be. So commercial vessels, wreck vessels, anyone can safely navigate that channel again. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of maintaining the, the maritime transportation system. Mm-hmm. In another mission of the Coast Guard, we're up to, I think, about four or five missions for Bozen right now. <laughs> we're in 2005, six range. That's it, 2005, <laughs> six, and seven. So, so and down in Jacksonville, you said is where you met your wife. I did, yes. I met my wife there. So I met her, I was down there probably about a year and a half or so. 
and then we got married down in St. Augustine. So, and from there, my next job was to Texas as the uh, XPO, the Executive Petty Officer of Aunt Sabine. And it was her first time moving away from home, uh, like permanently. So it was, uh, you know, Texas was a lot of fun. We, um, we got to meet a lot of, of people out there, uh, good community, and and uh, got to experience some of the, the ant, the Ace Navigation Team side of the house, the small boat stuff. Were you excited for getting to go to the ant at that time in your career to see another side of the Aton world? It was. It was another another Aton unit. You know, mm-hmm. got to to run a run the small boats around. Got to climb ranges. Uh, we had four wheelers and all the side by sides and chainsaws and whatever else to do. Uh, so Is it true that ospreys will attack you if you're messing with their? Uh, Fixed aids. <laughs> they will. They they uh, we try to avoid them most of the time. Um, but uh, which we mentioned the ospreys and stuff. We actually later on we uh, had drones that we would fly in Houston to the top of the range if we had an osprey nest just to see if it was occupied or not. So that was pretty cool. You know, kind of thing that how the Coast Guard evolves the technology and stuff to use. You utilize modern technology to save people from yeah, having exactly. to poke their head up into the nest. To, well, there's an osprey yeah. and getting pecked by it. Yeah, we had uh, osprey, snakes, and alligators. We had to deal with snakes, snakes, and yep. They climb their, you know, they get up on the ranges and open a battery box, and there's a whole there's a snake coiled up in there, and or bees. Bees oh, are a wow. big one too in bees, the battery yeah. box. Bees form a hive or something in there. Mm-hmm. And then yep. gators. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they're the ground guard. Yep. Some of the places we would uh, we cut. You know, we it's called brushing. So we you know clear the range lines and stuff. Cut down a lot of the the, the brush that would grow up between it uh, in Louisiana and and Texas. Of course, we're gonna have alligators and stuff. And so there was one guy who was standing over a walkway and an alligator come running underneath the walkway. You guys should have the uh, swamp people take their fan boats yes. <laughs> and protect you guys That's from it. the gators. Yeah. So, hey, come with us. Help us out. <laughs> okay. But. So, we're at the ant unit, mm-hmm. and you were a BM1 primarily at the ant unit. I was a BM1. Mm-hmm. And then yep. you advanced at the end of your tour? I did. I advanced at the end of my tour um, when I transferred to the Alex Haley up in Kodiak, Alaska. Okay, so what made you decide to go back to Alaska after hitting all these spots in the southeast? Um, it was kind of, it was on a list that it was in a float unit, and I had never been stationed up there. And we kind of just, from all the jobs to pick from, it wouldn't. It was not high on the list. I was joking with the, my detailer at the time, was a friend of mine I was stationed with before on the Murray Bray, and he's like, you're the only one to put it on your list, so I gave it to you. Gee, thanks a lot. But... Uh, I guess you get what you ask for, right? So, um, no, but Alaska was, it was just something new, something to experience, you know, and that's, you know, with the Coast Guard, you could, it's only temporary wherever your state, you know, mm-hmm. you can know experience whatever units you want to experience and uh, make the most of your career that way. So, you're like, well, let's go, let's go try this. I felt like I was just getting used to Newport and really liking it. And so I fully understand that where I'm going to be moving and, likely never have the opportunity they don't they have mst units out here so <laughs> no. i think i'll be out of luck to coming back to newport enjoy it while you're at there and make the most of it <laughs> yeah exactly make the make regardless the most of, of where you go <laughs> exactly exactly so don't get me wrong i mean alaska was neat we had our, our kids in texas so i uh, got to 
when we moved up there, we got to have four wheelers and side by sides. We got to take the kids off road four wheeling and experience a lot of the, the Alaska wildlife. And we got to go over to the mainland and go all the way to Fairbanks and through Denali and go see the sled dogs and uh, experience Anchorage and all the way to Homer and Whittier and. You said you were even chased by bears. We did. We went to uh, Exit Glacier in Seward, and we were um, going up the hill, and we heard a bunch of screaming up the hill up the on the um, on the path. And next thing we look up, and there's two. There's a couple running down the trail, and then next thing we see a little black bear running down the trail behind them, and uh, got down to us, and we kind of all grouped up together after we ran like crazy and then realize there's more of us than that bear so let's get together and try to fend this thing off and um it was it worked we you know he the bear kind of followed us back to the parking lot not aggressively but in the end of the tree line and stuff so that was an experience that one of the chiefs on the boat threw his backpack to try to get it away and the bear jumped on top of his backpack while it was running down the hill so <laughs> he had claw marks in the backpack which is pretty funny but um yeah, so that was an experience at Exit Glacier. Well, that's I think that's the key thing is, you know, maybe not everyone wants to experience a bear chase, but you get to experience every, you've been to so many different places and settings that you've experienced the culture and what it offers in each location there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the way to make the most of your time because wherever you get stationed, it might not be your number one pick. You said you want to go to Charleston. <laughs> yeah, I've time. never been able to get Charleston. <laughs> it's always been top of my list if there's something available. But even if Bozen wants to get Charleston and he didn't, he made the most of where he did go. Key West, he gave me excellent recommendations when I went out there traveling. <laughs> uh, Mel Fisher Treasure Museum, check it out if you're down there. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool, the, the stuff that he found. The buried treasure down there. Mm-hmm. Alaska, Texas. We go to all these different locations, and I think that's... You know, you're there for the mission, the job, you're in the Coast Guard, but you have all this time to check out and explore, so you got to take full advantage of all these opportunities. You certainly do. And, you know, when you do that, too, we have friends all throughout this whole country now that we've met and made, and, you know, we can give them a call. I was just texting one of my friends in Texas today, you know, just, hey, how's it going, and, you know, are you ready for for the holidays and stuff, you know? Um, Even up here, I've ran into people who are up in uh, at the sector in New England that uh, they were in Mobile or they were in Texas and stuff like that as active duty people, you know, and I move up here and it's like, oh, now you're retired and you're working up here now. So you know. just everyone's everywhere and exactly. it becomes a whole web. Exactly. Of yeah. The connections it, you, you, you'll have everywhere. Yeah. You network and do you and find that. some people stay regional every place you've been. I do. We do. Yeah. It's uh that from everything, even the year that I, after I've been up here, you know, there's a lot of people that stay in the D1 area, you know, in the New England area because this is what they like. Um, we when we were in the Gulf Coast, you know, it was oh they're I-10 sailors, you know, they're part of the D8 area that stays south of I-10. So it's there are a lot of people that do that, and mm. there's nothing wrong with that because they're established. And you know, if you have the opportunity, go go experience everything you can. If the Coast Guard's going to pay for you to move around and and see stuff and experience stuff. I mean, my kids have experienced more than, you know, most of the kids their age from Texas. Oh, yeah. Louisiana. They started in Texas, went to Alaska, back yep. to Texas, Newport. <laughs> yep. And when we, when we left Alaska, we went to, I got the district building out of uh, New Orleans. So, you know, we got to experience some of the New Orleans culture. 
and of course Louisiana food, you know. So they uh, and they grew up there, and we we did scouts there, and my daughter did dance, and you know, just kind of all worked out. But that's where you went. My connection, Mister Riccio. Yep, <laughs> yep. So I ran into him, and well, playing off that now. He retired as a warrant officer in the Coast Guard, and he left the office on Friday in Portland, Maine, and came back in Monday as a civilian. Yeah. Collected his full pension check, and now he's making a, over 100000 a civilian doing the exact same job. Yeah. That's... So, touching on that, how did you transition from Alaska as a chief to becoming a warrant officer? Because now we're entering a whole different rank and class system. You've left the enlisted rank system mm-hmm. and moved into the warrant system. Yeah. So when I left Alaska, um, I transferred as a chief to the District 8 building. And I was there two years. I had applied for warrant twice. And then um, my third time is when I, I got picked up for it. So it was my third year out of the fourth, my four-year tour in New Orleans. Um, where I got picked up for a warrant and ended up, finally I got my number one pick, uh, the Aton officer job in Galveston was, was open, available. And detailer called me and offered it to me and I couldn't believe it. I was, you know, I had to ask him twice. I was like, what, what job is this? So, but yeah, moving up to the, you know, still as part of the chief's mess as a chief warrant officer, uh, it's, it's been great. Some of the, you know, a lot of the job opportunities that have been, you know, available, some of the, the other networking stuff, you know, I still got involvement, still have involvement with the chief's mess. And it was fortunate that I was still in the same district that I was working in. Mm -hmm. Um, because my job at the district, I was in the federal project side of the house where we manage all Aton, you know, changes, Aton projects, notice the Mariner stuff, uh, for broadcasting it out to the public and everything. I would go around and work with all the construction tenders and all the Aton officers within the districts as surveying ranges. Because when ranges are built, they're, they're required to be positioned to a higher level of, of accuracy. Uh, so I got to do a lot of traveling while I was at district. And, um, you know, it just kind of, everything fell into place where I was able to fall into the warrant jobs within the district. Do you find that it really is a bridge type job between the enlisted and the officer world being a warrant officer? It can be uh, for some of the for some of the different units and everything like that. Maybe at district a little different than on the cutter. Yes. Yeah, definitely on the cutter. You have more direct interaction with the wardroom and the chief's mess and enlisted side of the house at the sector stuff. We, you know, we had our, our chief warrant officers association that was kind of the bridge between the wardroom and, you know, the enlisted side at sector. So, you know, we, we did golf tournaments and sponsored events and everything. And uh, it's good that, um, you know, you, you have that, that experience working your way up through the ranks that you can, you know, you still look out for everybody that works with you and around you. You can help train also, some of the junior officers and the importance of, you know, why things are set in place the way they are. Well, I guess I would ask this then, too, is because a lot of people, when they make chief, or I guess E6s can apply, too, to be a warrant. Uh, they have the warrant inspector programs now. They're hoping mm-hmm. E6s apply for, but 
I've heard that primarily people when they're chiefs make that decision whether they want to go the senior chief, master chief route or the warrant officer route. And there's a lot of uh, ambiguity in my head anyways. I'm sure once you get to this point of being a chief in the Coast Guard, it's pretty clear which path you want to take, what the differences are. Mm -hmm. But just for people maybe that they don't know which path they want to take. Yeah, I was going to go either way. It didn't really matter to me. Some people, they decide they're going to either go chief, senior chief, master chief because of the jobs that they have. And it's the same for warrant, you know, because like in the bosun mate side of the house, you know, once you start getting that, you know, first class chief, senior chief, master chief, you're either going to be an officer in charge or you're going to go into the badge network that everybody else can apply for or the warrant stuff, you know, you're going to be as part of a sector, you're going to be, you know, an ATON officer or you're going to be uh, the commanding officer of a 175. It depends on what job and how you really want to, or, you know, you're a CEO of a station too, as a warrant. So it depends on what you want to do um, and how you want to tailor your career, which, mm-hmm. which is a lot to do with jobs, a lot of what you want to do. It didn't matter to me really which way I was going to go. Um, fortunately, I'm very thankful I got picked up for warrant because it's allowed me to, you know, do the ATON officer job. Now, first lieutenant on the 225, and uh, retire where I want to retire. And you wanted to come back on a cutter after that Houston job to finish out your career? Was that your intended course? It was not my intended course at all. My intended course when I talked to the detailer was put a 225 on there as a first lieutenant and then apply to be a CO, a commanding officer of a 175. continue on until 30 years. So now that I'm in this job, I got to looking at everything and I got to looking at my future stuff. You know, when I leave here, I'll have 25 years in, you know, I'll be 43 years old, another 20 year job, put me at 63 years old. You know, I can retire because I'm going to have to get another job after this. So 25 years is a good place to stop for me mm-hmm. and my family because my kids are getting older, you know, they're getting to the high school age. I don't want to have to move them all around. And uh, so, it, you know, this is just kind of how the cards fell for me. And Well, I think that's very important, too, because I remember in high school is when I started really getting into doing a lot of things, those activities you picture your parents coming and watching you and you like seeing their support there in the crowd or the audience, mm-hmm. regardless if it was band concerts or sporting events yep. or even just the theater club. It was nice being able to see my parents there when I was part of the theater programs and again, yeah. uh, see them come and cheer me on and perform. So, yeah. So that was one of the toughest parts about being in Alaska too, was my kids were so young and I was gone so much that I missed a lot of their first, you know, three years, four years of their life up there. Um, and then being in New Orleans and Texas the last seven years, We've really got to build that relationships and, you know, programs we wanted to do between scouts or soccer or dance or band. And, you know, and I'm going to keep that going. You mm-hmm. know, it's, I love the, like I said, I love the buoy tender stuff, uh, but it's, it's time for me to retire at 25 and it's after this job. And 
It is. Being on any cutter is a hardship to a family. Mm -hmm. It's just a really tough element to deal with because cutters by their nature go underway for periods of time. Yep. And that really does make it harder on your family still being around. So that is a a consideration. We'll get into this in a moment here, but I guess we'll pivot now is, so you ended up leaving Houston. You got to Newport. Mm -hmm. Now you're the Bozen, the 225. And we're going to cover a lot about the 225 and the buoy tender section of this. But for a lot of people out there that are listening that have interest in the Bozeman career path, I guess I'll start out with, rather than the job itself, the family side of it Mm -hmm. is they're thinking they want to be a Bozeman, but they also have aspects to have families and they want to have a relatively stable life as possible. But Bozeman requires a lot of sea time and going underway. So what recommendations would you have for someone interested in a bosun mate that still wants to have a family to best prepare them mentally and getting ready for those times that they're going to have to be underway in their career? I would say choose the rate that interests you the most because if you are not happy with the rate that you're, you've picked that you're going to go, you're not going to be happy with your career. Mm-hmm. You're not going to have a good time. You're not going to have fun. And know that, yes, there are certain sea time requirements, but it's only temporary. You know what I mean? It's it's only a couple years. And there's all the different units. I mean, you can go everywhere from a two-year afloat job to a you know, three-, four-year job afloat. And with the Bosa mate rating, too, there's plenty of shoreside jobs, mm-hmm. too. That Over you can go, 50% of the rate, I think, shoreside. Yeah, you stations or, you know. Even some of the smaller, the larger cutters, you know, even though you're going to be gone for a longer period of span of time, you're still in. You're not, you know, like the smaller cutters where you're in for a week, two weeks, you're underway for a couple of weeks and then back in and you get juggled around. You know what I mean? There's some of the larger cutters like the polar roller. I mean, you know when you're going to be underway and you know when you're going to be in port. Mm-hmm. So whatever you pick, you know, even when you go both to me. Look at all the opportunities for it. Look at everything you can do, you know, and the leadership roles in that. And uh, well, universally, this is some of the best advice is just don't rush into something just to get off your first boat as a non-rate. Right. Definitely. There's a lot of short waits right now. It's easy to bail out. But if you want to go aviation or any of the support rates that have longer wait times and you're not happy as a non-rate, know that it's still going to be way shorter in your career than whatever rate you end up in. So you pick a rate that doesn't gel with what you want to do. It's going to be a bad time. Right, yeah. You're going to be miserable. Well, then let's pivot now to everyone that is interested in Bozen Mate, career advice-wise. Uh, there's so many ways a Bozen Mate career can go because like we just talked about, shoreside LE where you're dealing with the public and uh, small craft is completely different than being in southeast of the country doing migrant interdiction on a regular basis compared to working aton so there's so many different platforms so you can't subjectively say there's one definitive path for the bozeme career because it's the biggest rate in the coast guard and there's so many jobs entailed with it but just general career advice what would be a good recommendation for someone in terms of how they're laying out their career if they want to stay in the coast guard for a career and make it their goal to get as high as possible try to get you know try to visit a lot of the units um, a lot of the, the different types and different styles of units while you can 
while you're thinking about, you know, do you want to go bosun mate? And, and ask the questions. Ask the questions about, you know, what does it, what does somebody on a buoy tender do as a bosun mate? You know, between working on the buoy deck, running the cranes, running the small boats, running the davits, doing the towing evolutions, or go to a station and ask the bosun mates there, well, what kind of training do you need for a bosun mate at a station on the Gulf Coast? Do you really need pursuit training? What kind of boarding officer stuff, fisheries training, you know? Really do the research and ask the questions mm-hmm. to be able to learn everything you can about it. And if and if you don't feel like you're, you know, getting the support you need, use your chain of command to to say, I wanna go, you know, I wanna go to the sector and learn about what a bosomate does at a sector or a MSSTs, how much they travel, how much what kind of qualifications do they need. So Really, um, do you ask around, ask the questions about what everybody likes about the job they do. Like you ask me, I mean, I love the, the Aton side of the house and I can talk for, we're doing another podcast about it, you mm-hmm. know, so. Um, this is going to be the fun one to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> and Bozen's story is quite informative for the uh, prospective Bozen mate too, so. I hope that anyone that's listening to this episode got all those pieces that he talked about on his journey because those are all key bosun mate jobs that you can do in the field. So I'd like to also wrap up this first part of the discussion with going over what we just recently did with the migrant ops mm-hmm. in uh, Florida. So Coast Guard Cutter Oak, uh, we were called to assist in D7. There's a lot of migrant traveling going on from Cuba, Haiti, the whole Caribbean area right now. And migrant interdiction was a mission that I never thought I was going to do on this boat, but I just want to cover it briefly with having Bozen here and his perspective, what he thought of migrant interdiction inside of the Coast Guard in general too, is because it was, it really hit hard and it was really cool. He had mentioned that he saved lives before doing migrant interdiction. And I was part of one of those evolutions on the bridge, Bozen actually grabbed the searchlight and had it for over an hour on a chug with 29 people on there that would likely have sunk if we did not find them. Yeah, they were still at least a day from getting to land. Uh, and they were bailing water out of the boat. You know, they had fuel leaking. And uh, yeah, it was it was a bad situation that I'm, I'm glad we were able to to help, you know, to rescue them and get them off the boat. They may not have been happy with us, but we essentially, you know, we saved, we essentially saved, could have saved their life if, because there's no telling if they would have made to land. This engine was leaking so bad. There was a guy with second degree burns from the gasoline mixed with the salt water over his whole butt. It was truly remarkable that we ended up just happening to stumble upon them too, because they weren't showing up on radar. Captain just happened to look out the window and see something. Yeah. So it really, it's a, it's a very important mission that's going on down in the Southeast right now. And you give all the coasties that are currently down there a lot of credit to it doing lawn days, lawn hours, because there's constant chugs going over right now. It is. And everything we found was at night. Mm-hmm. Every, every time we had something pop up, it was, it was at night after we had worked a full day. That's right. You know, and we were only down there a short time. You know, we got all those other boats that are stationed down there permanently, and and they're constantly doing that. They're you know 
Right, that's their main mission. That's their main mission, yeah. And just to reiterate, these long days we're talking about is when you are when you first find migrants, they have to process on your deck, and they can't get repatriated instantly. There is a lot of higher up stuff that goes on way beyond the cutter. So we act as a holding platform, and you know these are people that you have on your boat. You take care of them. You got to make sure they're getting showers, brushing their teeth, get them fed twice a day, mm-hmm. beans and rice, and. You know, there's a lot of hygienic and safety precautions the crew has to take, too, in terms of dealing with the migrants also. So there's long, hard days. Then we got these calls in the middle of the night. Oh, more processing has to happen. And it doesn't matter if we've had processing happen at 3 a.m. Right. <laughs> the yep. whole crew had to get up and... <laughs> Pretty much all night. I think we stopped, what, at 5 in the morning one time? And then... mm-hmm. Everyone had been up for almost 24 hours in one capacity or another. So I remember when we were down there, when I was down there the first time, uh, it was us and another 110 stopped a, uh, a smuggling vessel with 55 people on board. 55 people. 55. And we're a crew of 12 on a 110. You know, between the two of us, the two boats and stuff, we were we were up well over 24 hours processing mm-hmm. migrants and, you know, trying to sort out who is actually responsible for this, you know, smuggling and, and everything like that. So it was, you know, there's a lot going on. And I remember my first case down there was a raft and um you know there was an infant on it that you know with a family and then uh we also happened to come across three guys on a piece of styrofoam one time that were so sunburnt they couldn't even sit on the deck that are having blankets and give them pedialyte and everything like that so you're you know you're you're rescuing people you're saving them from who knows what and then uh you know if the weather gets bad you're picking them up providing their care well, I think it's it's a very overshadowed mission that not a lot of people know about. I know prior to me joining, we knew about the land border side, mm-hmm. but no one really thinks about the sea border, I feel. And it's important to raise that awareness that there's a lot of hard crews working out there day and night to you know, do the mission for the Coast Guard. And all the local mariners even, you know, they see something they report to the Coast Guard too. And just a whole community effort. Yeah, we would have cruise ships yeah. um, would find them and call us, mm-hmm. and you know they'd stay on scene, stuff like that. So, and this has been going on for years, well before I even joined the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. They had a mass migration down there, and even it's really hard to get the ships all coordinated too, because sometimes we'd have five of us doing transfers from one boat to another because of just the way. Our boat couldn't fit inside the Gibbo Pier for repatriation, so mm-hmm. certain people that were ready for repatriation had to go onto those boats because a very narrow port and a very shallow draft area that the specifics of the FRC make it that they can fit in that we can't. So yep. a lot of multi-ship coordination and just everyone working very professionally and very well down there. So We had the same group of people on twice right we transferred them and Mm -hmm. brought them back and everything so you not only have them you also have all their their uh stuff that they brought with them that you have to keep track of we had your bags uh, it's part of bag team we had to put all the bags down stern thruster and we had them coded by the group so we made sure no one lost their stuff so So not only physical mentally demanding on everybody too people are taking their lives to and i think that is the mental part too is knowing that you feel for them, but you also have the job to uphold as well. Mm-hmm. And 
you see people taking their entire willing to take their entire lives and their families across the ocean and you know very risky situations but that's why we're out there that's it so just to let people know that that is a growing mission that's uh, had a lot of um, stuff going on there pulling from other districts and stuff to aid in that mission so migrant interdiction is definitely one of the big sides of the coast guard currently on the east coast for yeah. all the ships yeah it's involved yeah every different type of vessel that we're we coast guard has is down there mm-hmm. doing, doing their stuff. turn yep well thank you bozen for sharing your career path and enlighten us on the episode and i really would hammer that advice too i'm from new england i got stationed in new england with the guaranteed district one however when i leave a school i can just about guarantee that I'm not coming back to New England right away because it's you're getting the opportunity to travel in the government's time is how I view it. Yep. And how many people would move somewhere for free, essentially, yeah. to pay to move somewhere? I would have never gone to Australia on my own dime or mm-hmm. Antarctica or, you know, Dominican Republic or um, American Samoa or even Hawaii, you know. It's, even though we get stationed in Hawaii, you know, it's it's pretty cool to visit and go see something else i'll throw out one other cool thing that the master chief told me too is that because we're members of the military if you're a big traveler number one the amex platinum card is really good for travelers because military gets the fee waived for it but also he said that you can coordinate if there's a air force plane going over to germany yep space safe flights. you want to go to germany and there's open seats they have open seats for active duty military members that you could fly over there and save hundreds of dollars oh yeah put it all towards that trip over there <laughs> so there's just so many little cool things about being in the coast guard that i hope we get into more in the second part of the episode but the second part of the episode is going to be dedicated to Aton and all about the Black Hall fleet. We have Ant units to cover, 225s, 175s. Bozen's done it all. <laughs> but <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll definitely get into a great discussion about that. So thank you very much for tuning into this episode. And I hope anyone that you know is interested about Bozen, mate, uh, feel free to reach out to Bozen. <laughs> well, he's still in the Coast Guard. He has his retirement letter in. It's in. It's approved. <laughs> so... You got a short window, but there's no shortage of bows and mates you can reach out to as well. <laughs> yeah, any anybody anybody will help you. Any unit, I guarantee you'll find a bows and mate or a bows of some sort. At. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, good luck and stay tuned for part two of the episode to be aired shortly. And thank you very much for listening to part one, everybody. <laughs>